From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. There are fewer than 90 days until the 2022 midterm general election on November 8th. And Congress has been in overdrive trying to get things done before its August recess, which started this week for the Senate. Meantime, the kitchen table issue most Americans are talking about is the sky high inflation we're all dealing with. Lawmakers have been challenged by those inflation levels we haven't seen in 40 years. But for the Biden administration, there was a breakthrough this week with passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, meant to do just what it says, bring down those high prices. But Republicans call the move a tax and spending spree. Not a single Republican in the Senate voted for the measure. Here to tell us how he believes that legislation could impact you with lower costs and what else he's working on for Oregon. Welcome to my guest, Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley. Welcome back to well, Straight thank Talk. thank you so much, Laurel. It's, it's been a, a long time, hasn't it, hasn't, it for being it on been. set? I think we were saying it was two and a half years or yeah, something. Pre-COVID, and that's a long time ago. Well, let's start with what's on everybody's minds right now. Inflation, all the high prices everybody is paying. Some people, a lot of people blame that on President Biden and the Democrats. We did get a little good news this week with Inflation for July was down just a little bit, and the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act. In your opinion, how much good is that going to do? How big of a deal is that? Well, it's a it's a very big deal, and, and uh, it really is focused on energy costs and on drug costs and on tax equity to finally have some of the biggest corporations that pay no taxes but but rack up billions of dollars of profits actually pay their fair share. So those, th those are the three big things it undertakes, and I think people are going to feel the impact. A lot went into this behind the scenes. Over the weekend, you were involved in what's called a voterama, voting for hours. The Democrats needed every single member to vote for it. They had to be present. Give us a glimpse of what went into trying to pass this. Yeah, under the uh, bizarre Senate rules, uh, you can keep introducing more amendments, and anyone can do that, and so you keep going until everyone's exhausted and agrees, uh, okay, we'll, we'll wrap it up. And so you had folks, you have 80-year-old senators going clear through the night like they're in college, and uh, not just through the night, but through the next day. And so it's, uh, it's a grueling exercise, and it's an exercise that is kind of wrapped in mystery. For example, there were a lot of amendments introduced that I would have liked to have supported, but the, the balance of this carefully crafted package was so fragile that if you upset anybody along the way and didn't have 50 votes at the end of that day and a half, uh, then you might end up losing the whole package. So, so essentially there was kind of a common agreement to be very, very careful, uh, work, work together, and uh, get this bill over the finish line. Well, there are a couple of economists that are influential with Democrats and all the Republicans who voted against it who say this package will do little, if anything, to bring down inflation, and they call it a tax and spending spree. How big a deal is this going to be for Americans? Are they going to see it in their wallet? Is it really going to work? Well, they, they will. And let's start uh, on the drug side. Uh, so for the first time, we're going to see that America is starting the process of negotiating the price of drugs. It's what every other developed country does, and we don't. So we pay multiples of what other countries pay. Now, this bill doesn't go far enough, fast enough, in my opinion. I'd like to see us negotiate the price of every drug in America tomorrow. We should get the best prices in America, not the worst. But for the first time, it starts that process. And drug prices are a big deal to people. And for people who are on Medicare, well, this caps the out-of-pocket costs at $2,000. So you have people who are seniors, and you, you know, you've, when people are up 
in age, they start using five, ten medicines, and some of them are very expensive, and it may cost them ten, twenty thousand dollars a year. They can't mm -hmm. afford it, and so they stop taking them, even with Medicare. Well, this caps it at two thousand dollars. It's going to save a lot of lives. It's going to improve the quality of life uh, for millions of Americans, and it's going to put an inflation cap on those drugs in the future, so that we don't see the price gouging we've seen in the past. So that's that's some of the provisions just on the healthcare side. But that's only ten drugs. About ten drugs that Medicare can negotiate. That's not a lot. No, that's, that's right. It's, so it's a start. It's uh, 10 in the context of both the Medicare Part B and another 10 in Medicare Part D. Uh, but, but listen, it's uh, off the list of the 50 most expensive drugs, the most costly drugs in America. And so you have disproportionate costs from that set of drugs. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I want to do all of them uh, right now. But the drug industry has been so powerful that no bill like this has ever come close to passing before. And finally, we got our foot in the door on it. And I hope we follow up with negotiating every, every drug in the future. And there's a big battle over insulin because uh, the Senate Democrats wanted to have the, that cap, the out-of-pocket cost at $35 for everyone, private insurance and Medicare. But you didn't get private insurance, and so now only people on Medicare get that $35 cap. So the underlying bill had everyone in it. And th this is absolutely a clear-cut case. The Republicans said, we don't want everyone to benefit. We want to help the drug companies. So they took it out of the bill. And the way they were able to do that is called a bird bath uh, after uh, Robert Byrd. And uh, you can't have any policy changes in the bill. And so they bird bathed uh, that, and that, we had a 60 votes to keep it in. And every Republican voted to take it out. And so everyone out there suffering from diabetes who needs insulin, who is getting gouged on those incredible costs, you know exactly where to place the responsibility on this one. Well, the drug companies say Congress, the Senate Democrats are making a huge mistake that Americans are going to pay a steep price because this is going to reverse progress on research into new treatments and new medicines. Yeah, this is like the most bogus argument in the history of the country. So picture this. These companies are negotiating the price of drugs, or these companies are, with every other developed country. And they proceed in America to spend massive amounts, far more than on research, they spend it on advertising. So here in America, if we get the same negotiated price other countries get, they can raise that price throughout the developed world a little bit to make the difference. They would get the same revenues, but it wouldn't be Americans being gouged. And by the way, most of the research is financed by us as taxpayers, and that's why Americans should get the very best price among all the developed countries. So you don't think it's going to make a difference in research into new drugs? Absolutely and new not. Treatments. This is a complete uh, media campaign, false story by a very powerful industry. Look, uh, this industry has now, I used to say two lobbyists, but as of this year it became three lobbyists for every member of Congress. They use dark money campaigns. They use regular campaigns, they use media campaigns uh, to sustain this incredibly privileged position to rip us all off. And it has to end, and this is the very beginning of an ending. There's another component to this package. There was the, the drugs, the health care component. Then we have climate and taxes. So let's talk about climate now. And you played host to some VIPs that were in town. They were in Oregon this week. The EPA administrator, Michael Regan, and the energy secretary, Jennifer Granholm. And you were looking at a community a farm in Gresham. You also went down to OSU to look at the new wave technology that they have there. And this uh, climate component is supposed to bring down greenhouse gases by up to 40% by the year 2050. 
530. It's getting a lot of attention. What were your big takeaways from these visits? We're looking at some video here. And also, uh, how is this bill really going to make a difference with climate change? Yes. Uh, so um, think about the fact that what we have to do is electrify everything with renewable energy. So that means in terms of producing electricity, we need to move from uh, fossil gas uh, that produces a lot of energy and, and oil and coal. Uh, we need to instead produce it with solar and wind and things like, like tide energy uh, or wave uh, energy. Uh, and so in this bill is a 10-year guarantee for a production tax credit for renewable energy that is going to just rocket launch the production of solar and wind and make other renewable energy technologies uh, possible. And so that will have a huge impact in us reducing global warming gases. And then on the sides like transportation, this proceeds to have an electric vehicle tax credit extended. It's not as strong as we want it to be. Again, you know, I could set it, take it further, uh, but one thing I really do like is it provides a tax credit following Oregon's example for used electric vehicles. So I bought a used Leaf a few years ago. I bought a used Volt uh, a few years ago. They were so much cheaper and then, then buying a regular car. Then also, if families of ordinary income can get a tax credit to help them as well, this will really help spread the, the transition to electric vehicles uh, throughout our community. And I read that the solar industry is expecting production to expand something like five-fold under this bill. Ab absolutely. So we're, we're framing it so that not only will production expand, but create good paying American jobs. I introduced this strategy a couple years ago with the then president of the AFL-CIO, uh, President uh, uh, Trumpka. And um, the strategy was to have an enhanced tax credit if you had good paying jobs, union style jobs that provided apprenticeships, that provided prevailing wage, you know, family foundation jobs. And you're going to find that this production tax credit is small if you don't create those kinds of jobs and five times larger, a penny and a half per kilowatt hour. Uh, which is a lot in terms of, of uh, uh, subsidy producing uh, energy. And so uh, that's, a, that's a real step forward. You want the president to declare a climate emergency. What would that do? What would difference would that make? Under the National Emergency Act, you have all kinds of powers to shift funds. It's what uh, President Trump used on the border to try to build the, the border wall. You also have the Defense Production Act, which can help put American factories to work uh, making the components we need, like solar panels or wind turbines, and again, creating these jobs right here. I tried to get uh, President Biden to declare it in his inaugural speech. I put a, an article, an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, now's the moment. We've got a climate emergency. You know, the forest fires are doing incredible damage in my state. The loss of snowpack is doing incredible damage. It's hurting our farmers. It's hurting our ranchers. It's hurting our forestry. It's hurting our fishing. And uh, so uh, this is a real emergency. Let's declare it and give the, the administration maximum powers to use if Congress doesn't act. And over this last year and a half, while Congress didn't act, I kept saying, use these tools. We need to still use these tools because the president's goal is to get to a 50% reduction. And the bill we just passed is estimated to get us to 40%. So he's got to use the administrative powers inherent in the Department of Ag, where you can store carbon in, in soil, the Department of Energy, the Department of Interior, his foreign policy team. Use them all in a deliberate, bold, intense fashion to help driving the transition to renewable energy. Has he indicated at all to you whether he's considering that? Yes. And what does he say? He is considering it. And? 
I, I, think, I think it's likely we're going to hear an announcement on it. Sometime soon? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> okay, we are holding your breath. <laughs> but I, I have, uh, yeah, I better not hold my breath on it because I, I have I've thought we were close to achieving that before. There's several different acts he can declare an emergency under. Uh, and um, so we'll see exactly how he, he frames it. But I, I, think, I think the president will. He, he indicated as, as such that he was seriously considering it and, and close to deciding. And uh, it just is the case uh, that if we're going to tackle the challenge of methane and carbon dioxide in the air that are changing our lives so dramatically, America has to lead the world in that effort. We can't lead the world without the power of our example. So the power of our example has to be we use not only this law that has passed, but all the powers already inherent in the executive branch. And I failed to mention earlier, you said this law that passed, but we're waiting for the House, right? They spoke to vote yes, on it exactly. on Friday. We're taping this on Thursday, but we, it is expected the House will, will pass it on Friday. And that if the it does not pass it. this bill, well, it will be just an utter catastrophe. I'm confident they will. We'll be watching on Friday. And by the time this airs, uh, we will know. Um, I want to talk about the tax component because you talked about wanting American corporations like Amazon to pay their fair share. But in order to get all of the senators on board, you couldn't afford to lose one senator. And Senator Sinema from Arizona um, wanted some things. And so Democratic leaders had to drop a $14 billion tax on wealthy hedge fund managers and other tax measures. How big a concession was that? And was it worth it? You know, when I first heard about that, I couldn't get to sleep. I was so angry over losing uh, this effort to close the tax loophole. This is uh, folks who are not investing their own money. They're investing other people's money, but then they get to pay taxes as if they invested their own money. It's at a 15% rate lower than any of us uh, would, would pay. Uh, and uh, no, it's an, it's an outrageous provision. Uh, and I thought we were going to close it. So I was like, but the deal that was negotiated was we dropped that, but we put a 1% fee on stock buybacks, another outrageous operation. And, um, and so that's going to raise many times what the first, the, what we dropped, we lost. We, I think we got a multiple of three to four in terms of raising revenue. And this provision, stock buybacks, so think of the situation where a CEO kind of arranges for the corporate board. The corporate board arranges to give all themselves uh, stock options. And then when they do stock buybacks, they're artificially inflating the value of their own stock options. And they're doing nothing for the purpose of the, of, well, uh, for any of their mission in terms of expanding their company, seizing opportunity, doing R&D. No, they're just enriching themselves. So to put a fee on this, uh, I thought was a great substitute. So you think it was a good trade in the end? Well, I want both of them. <laughs> <laughs> but but in the, under the circumstances, I felt much better to find out, one, we hadn't lost money. Realize that this bill will also cut the deficit. $300 billion of this bill will be cutting the deficit. Uh, so we raised more money than we're spending by a significant factor. Now, my colleagues across the aisle have been saying, cut the deficit, cut the deficit, cut the deficit. And then they greatly expanded it with the tax cuts they did in 2017. Well, we're actually doing the opposite. We're doing good programs to take on real issues and cutting the deficit.
I want to shift to another subject for Oregon families, and you are the only Oregon congressional member since Senator Mark Hatfield to be on the powerful Senate Appropriations Committee. You're the chair of the Subcommittee on Interior, and you just released funding for the next fiscal year in 2023. That includes a lot of community projects that were initiated by the communities in Oregon, I think 111. Right. We have a graphic that shows some of the, the top ones uh, just from, from the metro area, $5 million for the Oregon Food Bank for facilities improvements in Multnomah, Malheur, Wasco counties, $3 million to construct a year-round homeless shelter in Beaverton, $2 million for Central City Concern for renovation and expansion of health care and housing facilities, $750,000 for NAMC Oregon for technical assistance programming to support Black-owned businesses. I mean, that's just a handful of them, but this still needs to go through some votes, right, before they get this money. That's, that's right. So it's in the Senate bill, the Senate markets referred to, and then we have to pass the fiscal year 23, and that's the fiscal year that starts on October 1st of, of this uh, coming year, not very far away now. Uh, and when that bill is passed, then these community-initiated projects will be delivered. Uh, on the last time round, every single project that I got into the bill got funded in the final bill. So I'm hoping that's the case again. Well, I'm sure they've got their fingers crossed. Senator, it's time for us to take a break. We have a lot more to talk about. We'll be back with our conversation with Senator Merkley in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk, I'm Laurel Porter. The November election is just around the corner and there are a lot of predictions about the mood of voters and how that may translate on election day. Democrats currently have majority control of both the House and the Senate, but political analysts predict a Republican wave in November with the GOP retaking majority control of the House and possibly the Senate. We continue our conversation with Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley and get his take on what's ahead among other topics. Once again, it's great to have you back here, Senator. Well, let's talk about that because we mentioned that you're the, the power of the chair of that powerful subcommittee on appropriations, the Interior Committee. But if your party loses the majority in the Senate in November, you would no longer be the chair. What do you think your party's prospects are for the November election? How is it looking? Well, in terms of the U.S. Senate, it looks a lot better than it, than it did. There's, a, there's wind in our sails, having passed uh, several bills recently, one for American manufacturing to retake the lead in, in world manufacturing of uh, chips, which is essential to every product. You can't build a car without it. You can't build anything <laughs> without it. Uh, and uh, that's also important for, for national security. Uh, to uh, proceed to uh, uh, go on and, and pass, having passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is starting to rebuild our bridges and our roads and our transit systems across America. Uh, then the uh, burn pit legislation for our veterans that the Republicans voted like 80, I don't know how many votes, they, uh, I, I think they uh, almost 80% uh, of the Republicans voted against it. Uh, and, uh, and then when they realized they couldn't kill it, on the next round, they voted for it. Uh, and, um, but why? Because they just want to paralyze us from getting anything done. So it's nice to kind of have broken that paralysis here in kind of the final inning of the ball game, if you will. It's like, it's like getting hits on base and somebody hits a home run, uh, then with the Inflation Reduction uh, Act, it cleans the bases, you win the game, and, and you say, yes, we delivered. You cheered for us, you urged us on, and it was very frustrating. We didn't do very well for eight innings, but the ninth inning, we got it done. And it's going to be so important on, on drug policy, so important on climate policy, so important on tax policy. And if you give us a few more senators, we can do a lot more. If we're not split 50-50, uh, we can do a lot more. So it's, there is a sense that things have changed. And also part of that wind is, is the Supreme Court. 
the Supreme Court has gone way over the edge to become a partisan super legislature, something I could never have imagined uh, happening. And that's really bothering people to have what is a vastly partisan Supreme Court. How big a role, you're, and you're referring to abortion as well and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, how big of a role do you think that will play in the November election? I think it will be a significant role in a number of seats. And we have surprises, for example, in Kansas. Uh, we had the uh, referral. Uh, the referral was on taking protections for reproductive care for abortion out of the state constitution. And Kansans, in what is considered as a pretty conservative state, said, no, no. We are not about taking away rights, but taking away rights is exactly what the Supreme Court has done, and I think it will help increase uh, turnout for folks saying we do not want a Supreme Court trying to be a legislature on cultural issues. I'm looking ahead now a little bit to 2024, and a CNN poll shows that 75% of Democrats and Democrat-leaning voters do not want President Biden to run for re-election. Do you think he should run again? Can we just please focus on 22? <laughs> That's no I mean, answer. Yeah, I, I think that that's a conversation that will happen when we know whether he's running and who else is getting into the race. Uh, but that's right now it's the question of can we make his last two years or his next two years, let me put it that way, in office uh, effective. And to be effective, uh, we need to retain control of both chambers. And so that's, that's what's going to be decided in, in November. And certainly in the Senate, it's not just legislation that's at stake, uh, it's nominations. And it's the, uh, the appointment of, of folks who honor the Constitution to our, our judgeships. Uh, so a lot at stake. So you won't answer that for a while, it sounds like, until we get closer to the We can talk about that way down the road. <laughs> well, there was a time uh, before the 2020 election you were thinking about running for president. Ultimately, you did not. But does that ever cross your mind at all? No, well, not at all. Uh, it is um, uh, certainly the case that uh, I had both my Senate uh, term ending, so I would have to choose between one or the other. And uh, the progressive lane was well filled by two of my colleagues with both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren running. So my decision was to focus on the Senate and try to restore it as a legislative body, which means essentially reforming the filibuster. So well, let's talk about that because you're passionate about this filibuster reform. And just to give people, we only have a couple of minutes, so we don't have a lot of time to, can't filibuster the rest of the show. But um, right now, you've said it's paralyzed because 60 senators have to vote for a measure for it to pass. And they don't have to filibuster and talk for hours on end like we saw in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in the 1939 movie. They just sent an email saying they don't like it. So what do you want to change? And most simply, they just vote no. So 41 senators vote no. They have a triple veto. They can keep a bill from coming to the floor, keep an amendment from ever getting to a vote, and keep a bill from getting to a vote. And this is the exact opposite of what our founders said. They said the Senate has to be a place where you can make decisions on issues facing America, which means whatever you do, make sure the majority makes the decision and there's no minority veto. And they said this because under the Confederation Congress, there was a minority veto and it paralyzed them. They couldn't raise money to pay the, the pensions of the folks who fought in the Revolutionary War. So they were like so frustrated. They said, don't let this happen. So let's fix it. And let's return to a true talking filibuster. So would you still support that you're in the majority right now? And this is the filibuster, the way it is now gives the minority more power. Would you still support this if you're in the minority? Absolutely. I've introduced these reforms in the majority, in the minority, and it's not the only reform we need to do. For example, it takes a week to debate whether to debate a bill. 
That's, a, that's just stupid. One hour debate, are we going to take this bill on the floor or not? Let's spend our time of 100 capable people actually doing the work on individual issues, individual amendments, getting bills done to address the real issues we face. Do you think that your idea will ever come up for a vote or come no, to pass? Yes, we were within two votes of getting it done on the election protection bill. You know, Senate bill number one, my bill to uh, stop gerrymandering, stop dark money and defend the ballot box for every American. It morphed into the freedom to vote bill along the way to get the 50th co-sponsor, Joe Manchin. And uh, it came within two votes of saying, yes, we'll go to a talking filibuster. And then under a talking filibuster, people would have to be on the floor. Everyone's allowed to speak twice for as long as they want. But there is an ultimate end that encourages compromise from, from both sides. And we could, it would eliminate the ability of a minority to veto a bill. Well, Senator Merkley, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. We ran out of time, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. I hope it's not another two and a half years before we have you here on the set. And we want to thank you for watching Straight Talk. You can get Straight Talk now as a podcast. Just search for it under the name KGW Straight Talk, wherever you get your podcast. We also have a QR code that you can just point your phone at the at the cam your camera, and it will take you to a link where you can download KGW Straight Talk as a podcast. Join us next week, and my guest is Oregon Senator Ron Wyden. We'll see you then for Straight Talk. We hope you have a great week.